All right, so let's open our Bibles again. And this, like I said, is not a sermon. It's going to be more of a Bible study. Uh, I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to spend a few more Wednesday nights together on this subject, and then we will go back to Romans and finish that up. Once we finish Romans uh, chapter 11, we will go to our different format on Wednesday night. And as I told you, I'll be taking the rest of Romans into a Sunday morning chapter 12 through 16. But what I want to talk about tonight again is in Matthew chapter 24, specifically verse 15, what and when is the abomination of desolation? And we're going to get more into, or at least the beginning of it, the interpretation of this topic of the abomination of desolation. Let me read the text. I'm going to start right in verse 15, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. The word of God says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get any of his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter nor on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the sun coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the last time we looked together at this text, we really just considered some basic observations. We were not interpreting the text. We weren't in, in many ways trying to relate it to any other text, but what we were trying to do is make some basic observations. And one of the key things that I brought to your attention is, is that in order to understand this text, you have to have those two anchors. And the first anchor is the questions that are asked, if you remember, in the very first part of chapter 24, where the disciples come to Jesus and ask him about the temple. Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed, not one stone would be left upon another. And so that immediately catapulted the disciples into this eschatological question. In their mind, as we'll see in a few moments, it brought to their attention myriads of Old Testament prophecies that they would have been aware of that would have made them think that this is talking about the Perusia, or the presence of Christ, the rule and reign of Christ in the kingdom, as they would have been understanding the Old Testament. So they asked the question, if you remember, when will these things be, which referred to the temple destruction, and then also, what will be the sign of your coming? That's the word perusia. It means presence on earth or presence as a kingly manner. And then, what is the sign of the end of the age? So clearly in their mind, they saw this as one in the same event. And you need to ask yourself a question, why did they do that? Why did they put all of it together? I mean, why aren't they as smart as we are? I mean, because we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and we know that Jesus didn't physically, literally come back. So why didn't they get it? Well, we have hindsight, which is 2020. They didn't have that. But what they did have is a lot of Old Testament prophecies from the prophets that gave them indication that this would be one and the same event. In many cases in the Old Testament, those prophecies read that way. They don't see the inner advent time, which we call the church age or the time of the Gentiles. It was not seen by those disciples of that time. They looked past it and did not even 
understand it in the Old Testament. Let me give you a quick example of how this works, okay? And we're going to look at more later on, but just for tonight, I want to show you one that's really popular that'll help you to see how this actually went down in the disciples' minds and hearts. Look at Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Just turn over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. This is at the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. <clears throat> It says in Luke 4:16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up and read and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah and when he opened the book he found the place where it is written the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then, it says in verse 20, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all that were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's wonderful, and that's true. It was. It was fulfilled. But that's not all the text says. In fact, if he were to continue to read on into Isaiah, it would have catapulted them into the future for us. But the Old Testament disciples, those that saw the Old Testament and understood these texts, would have known that he stopped short of the rest of the prophecy. In fact, that prophecy is taken from Isaiah 61. Verse 1 through 4. I want you to listen to it now. It says, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's where Jesus stopped. That's where he said it was fulfilled in their hearing. But in the very same sentence... In Isaiah 61, verse 2, I'll pick it up again. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes and oil of the joy of mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, and they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. But Jesus took this one whole prophecy and chopped it in half and said that only the first part of it is fulfilled. Had you been an Old Testament scholar and reading the book of Isaiah and not known what Jesus knew, you would have understood, as the disciples did, that whenever the Lord comes to fulfill what Isaiah 61 says, that he not only would have proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord, but he also would have brought the day of vengeance of our God. No wonder the disciples were thinking, are you here to set up your kingdom? Because in their mind, what would they have been thinking? They have been oppressed by Rome. And that the king of Israel is going to overthrow Rome. The day of vengeance. And that all of the ruins would be rebuilt. And the desolations would be repaired. And all that had happened to them over the years would be restored. This is one of many prophecies in the Old Testament that are occurring just like this. So no wonder whenever the disciples heard Jesus talk about the stones of the temple being thrown down, they would have immediately thought about Wait a minute, are you telling me this is the time of the days of vengeance when you're going to destroy everything and you're going to bring it back? In fact, reading the book of Daniel, which we're going to go to in a few moments, there are a number of passages there that clearly reflect the understanding of the disciples where they would have known that the advent of desolation in the temple and the destruction of the temple and the removal of the sacrificial system would have been a great sign of desolations to come 
and the advent of an evil ruler and even the resurrection and the final day when Michael would stand up on their behalf. So they would have thought that this was one in the same thing. When Jesus said that, that would have triggered clearly their thoughts of not only Isaiah, but also Daniel. So last week we made some observations, did we not? In Matthew chapter 24, some of those that we specifically noted, just to remind you of, about the abomination of desolation were this, that it will be something that you will see physically. You will see it. It will be visible, tangible, not spiritual. You will see it standing. This means exactly what it sounds like. It will be something standing, as also indicated in the text, in the holy place, which would have no doubt been the temple. This abomination, this thing that is defiling, uh, detestable by God, is going to be standing in the holy place. We also noted in an observation that it would start an unprecedented, unparalleled tribulation that would have its beginning point, its central point, its centric point in Judea or Judea and Jerusalem. This unprecedented tribulation, according to what Jesus says in uh, Matthew 24 and again in Luke and Mark, is a tribulation unlike anything that's ever occurred in the world. Anything that's ever occurred in the world. And so that's what the observation tells us. And then also one last one, as we noted, is that following this tribulation, this great tribulation, it will be followed by a literal physical return of Jesus Christ with his angels. He will come to gather together his elect from the four winds of the earth. This is paralleled and taught specifically by Paul the Apostle, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, chapter 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians, clearly referred to, even the same language is used, and many of the same words are used. So Paul was picking up his eschatology of the return of Christ from the literal words of Jesus himself. So those are some observations that we make, and that's simply all they are. We're not saying when they occur, when they might occur, or even what they mean. But now what I want to do is kind of turn the corner a little bit. I want to start talking about what some of these observations mean. And I'm going to try to be careful with it and let the text say what it says, but to help you understand what I believe the Bible is teaching regarding this topic, specifically the abomination of desolation. That's where we're zeroing in on. There's many topics we could discuss, but we want to zero in on this. So the first thing I want you to note in the text, if you look back at verse 15, Jesus says this, so therefore when you see the abomination of desolation, and here's the key, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus helps us a lot here because he gives us a reference in the Old Testament prophets that we can go back to to try to understand what this abomination of desolation is. But before we consider that, I want to point out to you something that is often used by those who are partial preterists about this text to say that all of this only refers to 70 A.D., and that is this. They will point out the second person plural pronoun that is used in the text in verse 15 where it says, therefore, when you, or in the south, we would say y'all, all right, or in the old authorized version, ye, all right, Whatever it is, it's a plural use. And so the understanding is, from that particular perspective, is, is that that means he's talking directly to the disciples. He's answering them and them alone. And he's telling them whenever you, that is, you guys, Peter and John and all the others that are there with you, whenever you see this, notably Jerusalem and get out, of t- get out of town. And it's restricted to the disciples of that time. And it's argued a lot that that is why we understand this text to mean something that has already occurred in the past in 70 A.D. When you see this, you, the ones that were there listening to Jesus that day, and I'm sure it would go broader to the disciples of that day, but there's a problem with that. Now, grammatically speaking, I have to tell you, I'll have to confess this, grammatically speaking, you could say that. 
I mean, you could say that the you there just refers to the guys that are there, and that's it. But is that really the way Matthew intended it? Is that really the way the Holy Spirit intended it? And what you'll find is if you study the Gospels and you study the Synoptic Gospels, you'll find out that in the didactic portions of those Gospels, the teaching portions of those Gospels, where Jesus is talking and teaching, he often uses the second person plural pronoun, you, to refer to much more and many more than the ones that were alive that day. Let me show you what I mean. You don't have to go to these passages because I'm going to move rapidly, so just listen to them, okay? Uh, first of all, we could just look at the same passage for a moment, right? And ask yourself a question, does this apply to more than just the local disciples of that day? Matthew 24, 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Is only them? Or is it more? Matthew 24, 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled. Is it only the disciples of that time? Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Are they the only ones that were killed and persecuted for the name of Christ? Or is it bigger than that? And this is also the case as you move back through the rest of the book of Matthew. And we're just going to stick with Matthew. We could have gone to other gospels and shown you the same thing but let me just show you how the word you is used that's larger and greater than the disciples of that day and age matthew five eleven says blessed are you plural you whenever they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets before you that's a much larger you there Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. Does that refer only to the disciples of that day, or is that bigger? Does it relate to us? Yes, it does. You are the light of the world. Again, same question. Is that just them, or is it us? It's all of us. Matthew 5, 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, applicable, a lot larger than the individual disciples of that day and age. Matthew 5, 32, But I say to you that, whatever, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Matthew 5, 22, But I say to you, plural, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Matthew 5, 39, But I tell you, plural, not to resist the evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, it is a universal statement to apply to all of the disciples of Christ. Matthew 5, 44, But I say to you, again plural, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Is that just for them? No, it's for all of us. Matthew 6, 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Of course, that replies... Uh, uh, applies to all of us he goes on in the same text and says therefore do not be like them for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask them in this manner therefore y'all pray he's not talking about just those guys there that day this is used all through Matthew like this it's literally everywhere Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink or what you need for your body. Here's one that's often applied to everybody. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not. And that judge, by the way, is a verb in the Greek language that has the personal, second person plural pronoun on it. That's the way verbs are in the Greek. They have their pronoun attached to it. And it is a plural pronoun. It could be read this way, you or y'all do not judge that you be judged, that you not be judged. So again, it's, this, it's a universal use of the word you, referring to not only the disciples of that time, but also the disciples that would be in the future, the whole of the church. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you, plural. In Matthew 13, you move a little further into the gospel of Matthew, you have the next didactic section of the book of Matthew where he's teaching about parables. And it says in Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Is, are they the only ones? Are they the only ones that know the mysteries of the kingdom? If they are, folks, we're in trouble. 
We all understand that because God has enlightened all of our eyes. That you use much larger than that. You have verses like this in Matthew 18, 3. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It's used again in Matthew 19, 14. Jesus said, let the little children, and the let has that second person plural pronoun on it. Y'all let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. In Matthew 23, now you can back up and follow this with me if you'd like. In Matthew 23, since you're there in Matthew 24. In Matthew 23, 8, it says this. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Now his audience is who? His disciples and the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel that he's about to rebuke. He's about to light into them and let them have it. And again, this teaching that Jesus gives to us is not restricted to just those disciples of that day. He's telling all of us not to seek to be called rabbi and teacher. There's only one Christ. Do not call anyone on the earth your father. Why? Because there's only one father, which is our father in heaven. That's a universal statement applicable to all of the church. Matthew 23, 11, But he who is greatest among you, plural, shall be your servant. That is a universal axiom given by Christ regarding the church. Now we turn the corner here. So you see that even in Matthew, and I skipped a lot of them, and you could go to Luke, and you could go to Mark and John and see the same use of the word you all throughout those gospel letters where Jesus is actually using the word you in much larger context. Now, I want to say this. There are times, clearly, where it is restricted to an individual person or a small group of people. There's no doubt about that. I definitely don't want to leave that out. But it's also just as clear that there are plenty of times whenever the Lord is giving instruction and even warning that those yous are intended to be much larger than the initial audience that Jesus was talking to. Now, when we come to Matthew 23, 34, look at that with me, Matthew 23, 34. This is where Jesus picks up, and I want to show you something really interesting here. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets. This is Jesus' conclusion of his rebuke of the Pharisees and leaders of Israel, the scribes and hypocrites of, of Israel. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed of the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. So what he's telling us is the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is about to fall on you. Well, it wasn't, by the way, wasn't just the Pharisees and the scribes there he was talking to. And it didn't include the disciples that were there that were following Christ. But it did include a large population of Israel that rejected the Messiah. But then notice how he uses the word you. He says in that same text, let me back it up just for a moment. He says, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Well, who's the you there? They weren't even alive whenever that happened. So again, the you is bigger, larger, more encompassing. Look at it a little further with me. Look at verse 37. So it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, the one who kills the prophets and the stones and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing and most believe that to refer to the leaders of Israel, unwilling to follow after Christ and lead the people of Israel to Christ. Then verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, and at that moment he's talking directly to the leaders of Israel, he says, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, plural, you, plural, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen. This statement, this Hallel given to us here, I believe it's Psalm 118, is a reference to the messianic coming of Christ. And what he is telling them there is, listen, you 
Pharisees, elders, and scribes are not going to see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, collectively, you as Israel in the future will one day bless me when I come back and honor me. It's bigger than you is in this text. I wanted to point that out because I think so often it is misunderstood and misapplied that even when we get down to this passage in Matthew 24, 15, and he says that you will see the abomination, there's no linguistic, grammatical, contextual reason why we have to restrict that only to the disciples that are listening to him that day or even the ones that are broader that are believers of that day. I believe that is a collective view in the sense that you, as believers of Christ, whenever you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and as I told you last time, I personally believe, and I think I'm correct in this, is that because of the anchors that are given to us in the text of the coming of Christ, the questions regarding the coming of Christ, and the actual statement of Jesus, of the literal return of Jesus here, that we have to understand that what he's talking about in verse 15, about the abomination of desolation, has to be a future event. Has to be a future event. And Jesus specifically says that this is something that is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. By Daniel the prophet. Now I want you to notice also in the text, this is important also, he says, whenever you see the abomination of desolation, not a abomination of desolation, not one of many abominations of desolations, not one of the many times that the temple was desecrated, polluted, and destroyed. He's not talking about just any abomination. He's talking about the abomination of desolation that was specifically spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And also, let me add this. He's obviously not talking about a historic event. He's not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes in the Old Testament reference in Daniel 8, as many apply to. Because this is a prophecy of the future, even if you're a partial preterist and believe all of this is 70 AD, it's still 40 years in the future. So whatever he's talking about here is a future event that is described by Daniel the prophet. And it is a specific event called the abomination of the desolation. Definite articles are used in there to indicate this is something uniquely described by Daniel, the prophet. And so in order for us to understand what he's talking about, where do you have to go? Exactly where Jesus said that they needed to go, back to the book of Daniel. Now, those disciples of his day would have been familiar with the book of Daniel, I just want to add one thought to this is that, you know, in those days, unlike you and I, we, we can carry our book of Daniel around wherever we wanted to go. We have it all the time. In those days, you didn't have many copies of the Old Testament just floating around everywhere. The scrolls were kept and copies of the scrolls were kept in the synagogues and detailed and protected by the scribes. And there was synagogue readings of the scripture. And so you would go to hear the book of Daniel read. You would go to hear the book of Isaiah read, much like Jesus did that day, right? He gathered in the synagogue, as was his custom. He rolled open, scrolled open the scroll there to Isaiah. And without chapter and verse, he knew exactly where he was, and he read Isaiah chapter 61. And so that's the way they were familiar with the Old Testament. But they would have known about the book of Daniel. I mean, Daniel was a hailed prophet. I mean, he was an important prophet of the Old Testament. Of all the Old Testament prophets, I cannot think of any other prophet that gives us such specific detail about the future, about the kingdoms of that time, and how God was going to rule and reign and raise up kingdoms and destroy kingdoms. It is an absolute amazing prophetic literature. So whenever we go back to the book of Daniel, we find that this abomination of desolation of is spoken of in four chapters. It's spoken of in Daniel 8, verse 11 through 13. It's spoken of in Daniel 9, verse 27. It's referred to and spoken of in Daniel eleven thirty-one. 31. It's also spoken of in Daniel 12, 11. Now, more specifically, it is alluded to in chapter 8. 
It is referenced in Daniel 9, but in Daniel 11 and 12, it is specifically stated the way the Lord states it, the abomination of desolation. So in order to understand this, we obviously are going to have to go back. We're going to have to go back to the book of Daniel. So if you can go back there with me, I would appreciate it. Go back to the book of Daniel. If you are near Ezekiel, just turn to your right. Ezekiel, Daniel. If you're in Hosea, back up. So here's some common characteristics about this abomination of desolation that we're going to see. Okay, This is what we're going to see in these verses. The first characteristic is this. We're going to see that associated with and at the time of the abomination of desolation, the daily sacrifices will be stopped. Now, the daily sacrifices that they're talking about are not what we think of with Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. These are the daily morning and evening sacrifices called the Tamid offerings. Tamid is the Hebrew word that just simply means continual. They happen every morning and every evening, or for the Jewish day, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. This, this sacrifice, this continual tamid sacrifice, is referenced in uh, Exodus chapter 29. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. De Exodus chapter 29 says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. There's the Hebrew word tamid. They call it the tamid offering. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah, a flour mixed in with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with the grain offering and the drink offering as you did in the morning. For a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord, these were burnt offerings, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. So the first thing that we're going to notice as we work our way through these texts is, is that this continual daily offering is going to be stopped. It's going to be caused to stop. The second thing we're going to notice is this, is that the abomination of desolation is set up in the time of the end. It will specifically reference that, that it will be set up in the time of the end. More specifically, it is referenced that way in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And then the third thing we're going to note here, and this is also very important, that associated with the advent of the stopping of the daily sacrifices and the abomination of desolation there will be a time span of three and a half years that will follow that event. It's referenced in the words of 1,200 in Daniel, 1,290 days. It's referenced in Revelation as 1,260 days. It's also referenced in the book of Daniel as time, times, and half a times. We'll discuss that in just a few moments, Lord willing, if we have time. So the point is, is that you have three main things that are happening in association with the abomination of desolation. Number one, the sacrifices that are daily, continual sacrifices, evening and morning, evening and morning, will be stopped. And they will be caused to stop by someone and something. And then also this abomination of desolation will be set up at the time of the end. And then third, it will be immediately followed by a period of time referenced often as a three and a half year period. So let's go to Daniel 8. Based on what I'm seeing, we're probably not going to get much further than this one. But that's okay. If the Lord doesn't come back anytime soon, we've got plenty of time. All right, Daniel chapter 8. Now, this is the first reference we have that alludes to an abomination of desolation. I'll show you what I mean. Look at Daniel 8. We're kind of dropping. We're parachuting into the text. Right? There's a lot going on here, and I can't reference all of it because we couldn't get to our points. But let's just parachute in in verse 11 and take a few points. Daniel 8.11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts. By him, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary, his capital, the Lord's sanctuary, God's sanctuary, was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, 
and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Verse 13. Then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. I want to make one point there, and I don't want to get bogged down too much, but the word translated here, days, actually is the rendering of two Hebrew words that refer to evening and mornings. It could be literally translated this for 2,300 evening and mornings. And that's important because it becomes an interpretive challenge because if it's uh, uh, 2,300 days, many scholars have looked at this and trying to figure out exactly when this starts and when it ends. And then others say, well, if it's referring to evening and mornings, it may refer to the sacrificial system that's being taken away. So it wouldn't be 2,300 days. It would be 1,300 sacrifices. So that's not my main point here. I just wanted you to note that because some of you probably have a study Bible that references that, makes mention of that, or alludes to that. And I don't want you to miss that, okay? So it is a tough text to understand which way it's going there. But now verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking its meaning that suddenly stood before me, one having the appearance of a man. And I heard the man's voice between the banks of Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So apparently this is the angel Gabriel coming to help Daniel. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, son of man, here it is, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Refers to the time of the end. Now, many understand this text to refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, which was an evil ruler who did evil things to Israel both in killing many of the Jews, desecrating the temple, setting up an altar to Zeus, slaughtering a pig, and even stuffing raw pork down the priest's mouth. So this would clearly qualify for an abomination that made the temple desolate, no doubt. The problem with that is this, is that I'm not saying that, that, is the, that, that that's an error, that that's not true, that this could not refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, but I am saying that this no doubt refers to more than Antiochus Epiphanes. And the reason why I say that is because of the phrase given to us in verse 17, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. We're going to see this a number of times in the book of Daniel. So even though Antiochus Epiphanes came to power in 175 B.C., and did horrible things to the people of Israel, this may not be the only thing that this prophecy refers to. Okay? And there are times in the Old Testament that we have prophetic events that actually foretell us of the future events. One would be in Isaiah where it says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. That was not only a reference to a historical event, many believe, but also a future prophecy of the the birth of Christ. Let me read a little further. In Daniel 8, Daniel 8, it says in verse 21, we get a little glimpse of this, this person. Daniel 8, 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between the eyes of, is the first king. And, the, and for the broken horn, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Now, he's picking up on the imagery that is given here of the beast and the, the, the goat that had the horn, and then one of the horns broke off and four horns came out of it, which many believe to be a representation of the growth of the Alexandrian Empire. When Alexander the Great died suddenly, really, as a young man, and then out of his kingdom it was divided into four sections, and then, of course, out of that came another horn. Look at it in verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom... 
when the transgressors have reached their fullness, the king, a king, shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but, n but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under the rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart and shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, which many believe are a reference to Christ. And he shall be broken without human means or human agency. Apparently divinely killed, sovereignly killed by God. And the vision of the evening and mornings, which I was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Now again, this could clearly just reference Antiochus Epiphanes, but I don't believe that it only refers to him. It is a clear parallel of what we see coming in the future of the man called the Antichrist. There's a lot of similarities here in this text. I want to bring this one to your attention because whenever we talk about the abomination of desolation, there is a hint of it clearly when it says the transgression of desolation. That's why I said that it is clearly referred to but not specifically stated. The second one we have is found in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Now this one gets even more complex. This is the 70 weeks of Daniel. And to put it in context, Daniel is praying and confessing the sins of the people of Israel. They're in captivity. And he goes on and on at the very beginning of Daniel 9, confessing the sins of the people of Israel and how they forsaken their God and they weren't faithful to God. And God is righteous in his judgment to bring them into captivity and then he begins to turn and shift and ask God for mercy to bring them back to their land and restore all of them to their land and to their temple and all that is there in Jerusalem. So he's basically saying, God, we confess our sins. You were right in bringing us into judgment for what we've done to your annual Sabbath. So therefore, please, Lord, forgive us of our sins and please restore us and bring us back. That's Daniel's prayer. You can read it for yourself as you have time. So in answer to that prayer, God sends Gabriel out again dispenses him out he flies from heaven and he comes down to deliver the message and to Daniel what does he say 70 weeks are determined upon your people and your city he's talking about Israel and Jerusalem right the 70 weeks don't let it be confusing to you and think that refers to the week like we have uh, Monday through Sunday or Sunday through Saturday however you look at it it's not seven days of a week the Hebrew term simply refers to 77s. And we know also from the way it's used in Daniel chapter 4 in a reference to the way he was going to be out for a period of sevens, uh, which would be seven years out on the ground eating grass, that this refers to a yearly period. So there's 77s. There's 70 times seven years, which ends up being 490 years or apparently sovereignly decreed by God on the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. That's the easy part. That's not the hard part. The hard part is getting into this text and finding out exactly who is he talking about in certain sections. And that's where you and I have to be willing to humble ourselves and admit there are times whenever it comes to prophecy specifically that we may not have everything nailed down quite yet. And that there are some things that are going to be very clear to us whenever the Lord comes back and we say, oh, now I remember. That's what Pastor Swan said. You was right. Right? Daniel 9, 26. I'm just picking up there. And after 62 weeks plus 7, refers to in the earlier verse, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, most universally, most scholars and Bible theologians and pastors believe this is a reference to Jesus Christ being crucified. That after 69 weeks, Jesus would be cut off. He would die, but not for himself, which would mean substitutionary atonement. He's dying for us in the place of his sheep. And then it turns. And this is what happens in prophecy. You're reading along. It makes perfect sense. You're following along with it. And all of a sudden, the very next sentence, we're somewhere else. And it's like, okay, wait, what? What? Where did I, how did we get here? 
So we were just talking about Jesus being put to death, but not for himself. And then we launch into the future, at least a little ways into the future, depending on how you take the text. Some believe this is only a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Some believe this is a reference to the coming gathering of armies against Jerusalem that Zechariah and Ezekiel refer to. But it says in verse 26, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Let's just stop there for a moment. And by the way, what I'm saying tonight is nowhere near an exhaustive study of this text. I'm just giving you some highlights of it, and our main point is to emphasize the abomination of desolation. So after Daniel hears this prophetic announcement that after 69 weeks, which would be the 62 plus 7 referred to in verse 26, Messiah would be cut off, and then he references a time whenever the people shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. But the people have to be a certain kind of people, the people of the prince who is to come. So this group of people, whoever they are, are going to be the ones who destroy the city and the sanctuary, which is clearly a reference to Jerusalem and the temple, and the end of it will be like a flood. It's going to come rapidly, quickly, suddenly, and it will destroy. Now the question is, who exactly is he talking about? Some believe this refers simply to the Roman armies that gathered around Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and that the prince who is to come would refer to Titus, the general. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, it definitely could fit. I don't see any reason why it couldn't be there like that. But I believe it actually has a little bit more going on here than that, honestly. That the people of the prince who is to come, in other words, some say the people, being the Roman people, came against Jerusalem, but that this prince here is of the same kind of people. And some have taught that this refers to a revived Roman Empire. I don't hold to that, personally. I hold to an aberrant view that hardly anybody holds to. I hold to this being Islam, personally. Because the people that came against the temple, most people don't even know this, the people that came against the temple, the soldiers that were commissioned to do that, most of them were Arabs. They were commissioned by Rome. They were hired by Rome. And they did the dirty work. Titus definitely was leading at that time, at least in that one event, and went against his orders to do so. But the point is, is that the people here who shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, whoever they are, there's a prince who is coming. There's a prince who is coming. Let's just follow the thought for a moment, okay? So this prince is coming. Now look at verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now who is he? Who is the he referring to? Well, grammatically speaking, the closest person it would refer to is the prince who is to come. Some take this to refer to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who will make strong a covenant with many for one week. And that in the middle of the week, he, he is crucified after his three and a half years, they would say, of ministry. And then he brings an end to the, offer, the offerings and the sacrifice. And there's problems with that because at the time of Jesus' death, the offerings and the sacrifice continued for 40 more years. For 40 more years. I believe that what's going on here in verse 27 is that the he here in verse 27 refers back to the prince who is coming. The coming prince of the same people who destroyed the sanctuary. He is coming, and I believe that to be a reference to the Antichrist, is coming to confirm a covenant with many for one week. And in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven, that's three and a half years in, notice now the wording in verse 27, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall, one, shall be one who makes desolate. Now again, that's not the exact wording that Jesus gave to us in Matthew chapter 24. But there's clearly a reference to it, is it not? It's a reference to the ending of sacrifice and a reference to an abomination that makes desolate. And I honestly believe that based on 
Daniel 11 and 12, that this is referencing the same thing. So whoever this person is, this one that is referenced in verse 27, the he, he shall confirm or make strong a covenant or an agreement with many for one seven, one period of seven years. And in the middle of that seven-year period, exactly halfway through, three and a half years in, he will basically break it. He's going to break the covenant. He's going to put an end to the sacrifices that are going on in the temple, and he's going to make it desolate by an abomination, which we looked at last week was a reference to some type of detestable thing that is stood up in the temple, and um, in most cases in the, in the reference of the Old Testament, the abomination referred to something idolatrous, idolatrous. Here's a couple other references. Look at Daniel 11. Daniel 11, again, we're not reading the whole text, just to point out a few things. Daniel 11.30, So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant, and forces shall be mustered by him, and I believe this is a reference to Antichrist, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there, here it is, the abomination of desolation. Exact wording. This is the exact wording of our Lord. We're getting much closer to it now, right? So it says that the forces are going to be mustered by him, who is him. We'll learn about him in a few moments. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there, stand up there, if you will, the abomination of desolation. Now, that's not the only reference to this specifically. We have one last one given to us in Daniel 12. Look at this. In Daniel 12 and verse 11. And from that time, the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. This is 30 days more than what Revelation refers to, 1,260 days. But the point I want you to note here in verse 11 is that at the very time that the daily sacrifice, the tamid offering, is removed, shut down and stopped, and the abomination is set up, it says there shall be 1,290 days, which is approximately... Three and a half years plus one month. And there are there is nobody, nobody who knows what that other 30 days are for. And nobody knows what the next 45 days are referenced for in Daniel. There are people who guess what they are, but there's nothing else in the Bible that refers to them other than what Daniel is told. And he's even told by the angel, you go away. You're going to rest. In other words, you're going to die, and then you'll be resurrected and put in your place forever. But Daniel, seal up the book until the time of the end. In other words, we'll know what it is whenever the time comes. That's the point. But beyond all of that, do you see clearly now that we have at least two references to the abomination of desolation and two specific statements about that? And I believe whenever Jesus is talking about this, he's primarily referencing what I believe to be in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. The abomination of desolation spoken of there by Daniel the prophet given to him in chapter 11 and chapter 12. That's what he tells us. So, let's see. It's 8.03. Do I want to go any further? Probably not. We're going to have to stop there tonight. But let me close with something here. I don't want to do this next week because I think it would be just more information than you could handle, at least in one sitting anyway. It'll just get too much. One of the things I pointed out to you is that this abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks of is followed by an event of time. He refers to it as times, times, and half a times. We'll see that next time. And also there's 1,290 days referred to here in Daniel. Revelation refers to it in the terms of 42 months and 1,260 days. There's definitely a three-and-a-half-year period following this setting up of the abomination of desolation and the stopping of the sacrifices in the temple. No doubt about that, for sure. But did you know that many of our early church fathers affirmed that very thing? Many of the church fathers that we often go back to to support our understanding of the New Testament and to find agreement with, because they were so close to the apostles, agree with much of what I just shared with you right now. And you have to also think of it like this. Most of these church fathers were decades away from the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It was still laid waste. 
whenever they were willing to say the things that they, saw, that they said regarding a future temple and abomination being set up and the time following that. Let me close with that tonight, just a few th- statements about that. Justin Martyr, which dates in 160 A.D., so we're just uh, a little over 100 years, maybe just 100 years past the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, right? Not too far. Think of it like this. We're almost 100 years past World War II. Not too far. Most of us are very vivid about that. We've got understanding of what happened there. We know what went down. And uh, it's not so far in the past that you can't remember it. So Justin Martyr, 160 A.D., wrote that Jesus will gloriously return from heaven once this man of apostasy has spoken blasphemies against the Most High and has persecuted Christians. Also, St. Um, Irenaeus of Lyons believed that the Antichrist should be equated with the lawless one and the son of perdition spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. According to Irenaeus, this man will be endowed, and this is a quote, this man will be endowed with all the power of the devil and will arise from a ten-kingdom confederacy to reign over the earth for three years and six months and will sit in the temple of Jerusalem until the Lord returns. Now remember, when he says that, there is no temple at all. And he goes on and says, as he states, until the Lord returns from heaven in the clouds. Irenaeus saw at least the final half of the 70th week of Daniel 9.27 as speaking about the final years prior to the return of Jesus. And then St. Hippolytus of Rome in A.D. 200 taught that the entire final week of Daniel in Daniel 9.27 refers to the last week that is to be at the end of the whole world. He identified the beast in Revelation as the future Antichrist who will seek to be worshipped as God. Hippolytus also believed that the Antichrist will reign for a time, times and half a times, that's three and a half, time meaning one, times meaning two, and then half a time meaning half of that, or three and a half years, which he explained to be three and a half years, and rebuild Jerusalem and restore the temple sanctuary while exalting himself above all kings and above every god. He also taught that the Antichrist will reveal the abomination of desolation and remove the sacrifice and oblation in the middle of the last week in Daniel 9.27. For when the 62 weeks are fulfilled and Christ has come and the gospel is preached in every place, the times will then be accomplished. Then there will remain only one week, that is the last one, and in the middle of that 70th week, the abomination of desolation will be manifest. This is the Antichrist announcing desolation to the world, and when he comes, the sacrifice and the oblation will be removed. Tertullian in 210 A.D. taught that the resurrection of the dead will occur immediately after the destruction of the Antichrist. Origen referenced Daniel 11.31 to teach that the Antichrist will establish the abomination of desolation on the temple so that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, a clear reference to 2 Thessalonians 2.4. St. Cyprian, Victorinus, and Lactantius, all in 250 to 280 said that the future Antichrist will persecute God's saints. Victorinus believed that the number 666 referred to the name of the Antichrist. Lactantius taught that Jesus will return to destroy Antichrist, who will be a wicked man who requires worship of himself, calls himself God, performs demonic signs and wonders. He explained that the Antichrist will also attempt to destroy the temple of God and persecute the righteous during the 42 months of distress and tribulation, such as there has never been from the beginning of the world. So just reading those church fathers, you gather that we're not too far off base. That as late as just a really one century or a century and a half or even decades after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they did not see that as the event described by our Lord or by Paul or even by Daniel. They saw it as much further into the future. And we're going to talk about this even more next time as we get more into Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12. And I think you'll see why I believe this is clearly a future event. So let's take a moment. Close in prayer as we close our service tonight.
Father, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you, Lord, just for your word. And, Lord, we are humbled to recognize that we are still, as we study these very, very interesting and very important topics, Lord, we recognize that there is still much that we can understand. And, Lord, we do pray for insight from your spirit as we look at your word. We ask you, Lord God, for us as we are carefully considering these things to to look forward to what you have told us about your return, to anticipate it, even as Peter tells us, Lord, to hasten the return of Christ. I pray, God, for us all, regardless of where we stand on these points tonight, to be watchful and ready and sober and alert, preparing our hearts and our minds and those around us for the soon return of Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.